This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. Uh, I have a guest today who many of you have been emailing me saying you wanted to hear really since I launched the program, Francis Fukuyama, a legendary political scientist. He's at Stanford now. He's known for, for the end of history in The Last Man, which argued that liberal democracy was a such a dominant model that had triumphed so completely over communism that we had moved past the point of these great clash of civilization like political conflicts. Uh, more recently, he's been writing about the origins of liberal democracies, how they emerge, how they develop, and also how they decay. So more recently, he's written two really tremendous books, The Origins of Political Order and also Political Order and Political Decay. And, and, and both of them try to track a thesis that is very connected to the end of history. How do liberal democracies emerge? How do societies become stable democracies? And also, how do they begin to die? What kinds of forces rot them from within? It is a very, very relevant work right now. And we, we talk about it in, in some detail. We talk about why he uses Denmark as the example of, of a very high-functioning liberal democratic society. We talk about whether what is happening now in America with Trump accords to his theses or is another kind of problem. We talk about what is motivating white working class distrust and anger at the political system. We talk about whether it's special interests or polarization that are behind our problems. We talk about what he learned from Samuel Huntington and Black Lives Matter and Ronald Reagan and the Iraq War. This conversation goes in a lot of different directions. It was an honor to talk to Fukuyama. He's a genuinely brilliant guy. I think you will all enjoy it very much. Uh, I will take the moment here to make my three normal plugs. Please subscribe to the show. Share it on iTunes, on Facebook, on Snapchat, wherever you like to share things. Rate it on iTunes. Uh, it is how we grow. It makes me very grateful. Second, listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff, where we dive deep into the policy weeds. And finally, keep sending your emails for guest requests, your feedback, whatever it may be, to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox. Com. All that said, here is Francis Fukuyama. Francis Fukuyama, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. So I'd like to get a sense of where you see American politics at the moment. You have this wonderful framing device in, in your book, Political Origins, that countries are in some broad way trying to get to Denmark, trying to become a, a stable liberal democracy as Denmark. Right now, do you think America is in the Denmark category? <laughs> 
Well, the um, the other big theme in my books is the theme about political decay. Right. So countries move towards Denmark. They don't ever quite get there. I don't think even Denmark is really the Denmark of popular imagination, but they can also roll backwards. And I think right now we are going through what I regard as probably, in a way, one of the most serious political crises that I've experienced in my lifetime, because you've now got a candidate who I think could undo a lot of the institutional rules that we've come to expect in terms of American politics. On the other hand, I think the Trump candidacy represents also a broader social issue, which is this kind of forgotten white working class that has been underrepresented in American democracy over the past uh, generation. So in that respect, at least they're getting a voice. I do think it represents actually the correct working of democracy. The problem is that it seems to me it's very unlikely to produce actual policies and changes that are going to fix any of the underlying problems that, that make people upset. So something I thought was so useful about your book's political origins and, and, and the follow-up on political decay is that a lot of people have intuitions about both what makes a country good and prosperous and also if it's on the wrong track. But you really had, I think, a, a fascinating framework. So I'd love to hear, to the extent to the extent you've thought about it, what you think Trump represents or what you think this moment in American politics represents in terms of those basic foundations that you lay out about patrimonialism and about the construction and stability of institutions. Like, how do you see America from the 30,000 foot level? Right. And I well, think we're very caught in talking about Trump as an individual too mm-hmm. often. No, that's right. I coined a phrase or a word in the book, uh, vitocracy meaning rule by veto. And the broader argument is that the American political system has always made it very hard for the government to actually do things, to to come to a decision, because it gives a lot of parts of the political system vetoes over what the whole of the system does. In most of the 20th century, this was not a terrible problem because there was a lot of overlap between the two political parties. And so all of the major pieces of legislation, the New Deal, the Great Society, the Reagan tax cuts were based on a fair amount of cooperation between Republicans and Democrats. But a couple of things have happened in the last 20 years. So one is the partisan, uh, increasingly partisan polarization in Congress and in the broader society. And then the other is the rise of of very well-resourced and very well-organized interest groups. And I think that the political decay comes in when those interest groups really use their power, if not to wrangle subsidies and tax breaks for themselves, which they do, but also to veto things that are not in their interest. So, for example, this carried interest provision that allows hedge fund managers to be taxed only at 15 percent, whereas everybody else has to pay something closer to 40 percent. As far as I can see, nobody justifies this except for a very small group of people politically, but we can't get rid of it because that group is is well-funded enough to be able to veto the kind of legislation that would be needed to change the law. So that's, you know, so people perceive this both on the on the left and the right. So the Trump supporters and the Sanders supporters don't like hedge fund managers and and all the oligarchs that populate American politics. And I think they're struggling to figure out a way to to fix the problem. Uh, One thing that I always find difficult in the the money and politics and special interest dimension of this discussion, 
is which of the ills are really traceable to them and which aren't. So I, I love your term vitocracy. I think it's a, a really it's a really helpful thing for thinking about where America is right now. But when I think about what constructs our vitocracy, and particularly the, the vitocracy that people know about, right, the the, the one that mm-hmm. grabs headlines on on A1, oftentimes it doesn't seem to me that it is the special interest groups, the hedge fund folks, that there is in some ways money and polarization often seem to be working at almost cross purposes at this point where political polarization, the fact that uh, – and, and the, the underlying incentive of the elections where the president getting a policy win is a loss for the opposing side. And so the opposing side has an incentive built in to deny the president policy wins. That seems to be gumming a lot of things up. Meanwhile, you have a lot of these special interests, but they typically want something to get done. Not always. They're obviously sometimes blocking. But there are a lot of cases like with, say, infrastructure, where the Chamber of Commerce and the AFL-CIO were both pushing a big infrastructure bill that kept getting rejected, or something like the debt ceiling, where nobody in the business community wanted to see that breached. And I feel that it's something I noticed that it's very comfortable for people to blame the breakdown on American politics on these sorts of special interests. And, and there's plenty they do that's malign. But a lot of the breakdown seems to me to be something that is being driven by the ideological distance between the parties and how it interacts with our electoral system, whereas the the special interests often want something that's a little bit more status quo with incremental with incremental advances forward. Well, let's go to the question of in- infrastructure that you raise because I think that's a perfect illustration of vitocracy on a local level. So, especially here in California, where I live. It is really, really hard to do a large infrastructure project. You're right that both the Republicans and the Democrats agree that we ought to do this, but in a way there's a joint conspiracy to prevent it from happening. And so the Republicans don't want to vote the money. Uh, We haven't raised the gas tax that actually pays for the transportation fund that maintains our highways. It hasn't been raised since the early 1990s. And the Democrats uh, really want to permit everything to death. To give you an example of vitocracy here in California, we have a law called CEQA, which is the California Environmental Quality Act that was passed, you know, more than a generation ago. It gives standing to every single citizen of the state of California to sue any given project that they want. It's an environmental law, but you don't have to sue on environmental grounds. And so you can sue if you're a business competitor or a labor union or a NIMBY neighbor that just doesn't want something, you know, blocking their view of the you know, the ocean. And the result is a combination. So it's both of those things. It's the polarization. And it's also a system that really allows very small concentrated interests to, to stop things. And I think that's why we're, we're stuck on, on, on this infrastructure issue. Does it seem to you that the vitocracy has a bit of a one-way ratchet quality to it, that we impose new restrictions, new regulations, and in in some cases in in politics, new procedures that make things more difficult? It can be anything from, you know, more and more transparency requirements to the filibuster. And is this a case where individual ones are fine, but what we're dealing with is an accumulation where we don't really have a process to roll them back? Or is it more episodic? Is it more that a couple moments in history, there is a hinge point where a really bad law was passed or a process was bought into, and now it's very hard to, to turn the ship? No, I think it's more this just incremental over the years accumulation of crud in the system that just gums up the works. And then this real inability to take a trenchant 
you know, reform moment to clear away a lot of this old legislation. That's one of the big issues. We, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of the anti-regulation sentiment, you know, expressed typically by Republicans is actually correct, that you can simplify that system a great deal and still maintain the basic purposes, the public purposes that the regulation, you know, was meant to achieve. Uh, and, you know, let's take the example of transparency. There's a lot of things that seem to be a good idea. So in a democracy, nobody wants politicians or bureaucrats to do things in secret. But in a certain sense, we've accumulated these transparency rules that make it impossible to deliberate. There's something called the um, Federal Advisory Commission Act passed back in the 1970s that says basically if you've got a multi-member commission like the SEC or the FEC or whatever, that if they consult with citizens, you know, in a, in a group, it's considered a public meeting. The press has to be involved. There has to be partisan balance in the representation. And the result is that on all these commissions, the commissioners can't talk to each other because everything is going to be public and it'll be tweeted and things will be taken out of context. And so this kind of thing accumulates over time. The basic impulse is always for more, uh, you know, solving the problem of too much regulation by further regulation. And it's very hard to roll back. So something that I think is really interesting in the example you just gave and, and speaks, in my view, very directly to this year. So there is a conversation in this country, and it's become very invigorated of late, around elites, how good of a job they do, their essential validity or legitimacy, and the broader role they play in our polity. And And one thing that I think is interesting is that we seem to be engaged in a series of, over time, and I think over decades now, going back to the, the sorts of transparency regulations you're talking about with FECA, we seem to be engaged in a series of policy maneuvers to reduce the power of elites. So elites have become much less powerful in political party primaries, for instance, which is part of how Bernie Sanders went so far and part of how Donald Trump actually won. In, a, in another age when elites had more control, those candidates would not have had a chance. We have these transparency rules that make it much easier to get insight into things elites are saying at times when they think they're being private between themselves. And similarly, when we see someone like Trump come on, there's a, a huge castigation of, of the elite class, which is considered to, to have let him in. And so what seems to me to be happening to some degree, and, and you never want to be on the side of elites in American politics, even the word makes right. you sound like a jerk. But what seems to be happening to me to some degree is that we keep taking power away from these folks or these processes. We make it harder for them to deliberate. We make it harder for them to act then the outcomes get worse and we get yet angrier at them. So we take more power from them and we're just end up in a very strange cycle where we are, are, are delegitimizing the elites. There's a lot of this in the conversation around Trump, who is on the one hand, elites are blamed for creating him. And on the other hand, I think it's pretty clearly true that he wouldn't have taken his party's primary if elites had more power in the Republican primary. So what do you think of as 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 both the role of elites and, and the way political opinion is turned on them? Is this something that we should be unnerved by or is it something that's actually in the long run good? Well, I have two <laughs> seemingly contradictory opinions about this. So on the one hand, I think that there is a it's something that Larry Bartels calls a democratic folk theorem, but it basically says that the more participation, uh, democratic participation by ordinary people, the better. And I think that runs up into the reality that most citizens 
don't have the time, inclination, you know, knowledge, uh, background to actually make complex policy decisions. You see this very much again here in California on this referendum, the initiatives. So every election cycle, you get this thick little telephone book of all of these initiatives. So I'm a political scientist. I do not have the time and the energy to actually sort through the rights and wrongs of all of these sorts of things. And yet, every citizen in California is expected to be paying attention to this. And so I think what happens is that the actual vote is not based on any kind of deliberative, reasoned, rational discussion of issues. It's based on emotions and who does more television advertising and the like. And similarly, things like the popular primaries in both of the parties have actually not made the system more representative because the only people that vote in primaries are activists. And so the parties tend to nominate people that represent that activist base that are always more extreme than the than the median voters in, in, in either party. So that is really a problem. I think you have to have a uh, essentially a, a delegative form of democracy, which was the one originally conceived in the Constitution, where you you basically, you broadly approve representatives who do have the time and the inclination and the background to make uh, these more complex choices. On the other hand, uh, I think it's the case that sometimes those elites do get entrenched and sometimes they ignore some very basic, not detailed policy preferences, but but broad issues. And one of those is, I think, what's hitting us right now is the, you know, the fate of the old working class, which actually, in retrospect, it seems to me very surprising that the political system hasn't reflected what's happened to those people over over the last generation. It's complicated. I think you, you have to have elites in a democratic political system. You have to have delegation. You have to have representation. But sometimes that group becomes a little bit too inbred and, and insensitive to broader currents out there in the society. And so it does need a, a certain correction. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box.
one of the things you said there that is maybe helping me conceptualize something a bit, a bit better is that we have a tendency to create processes where when we are trying to take power from elites, what we think we are doing or what we say we are doing is creating space for ordinary Americans to engage. And so there's a lot of this in the federal rulemaking process, for instance. There's a tremendous amount of, of process created so that the rule isn't just done by the SEC in secret. There's a public comment period. There are a bunch of public meetings. And, right. and the idea behind that is that people should have an opportunity to weigh in. In practice, what you get are people who are invested or self-interested weighing in because most people don't have time to go to SEC rulemaking meetings. So it's become a tremendous source of lobbyist influence because the banks all pay people to attend every single one of the meetings that were meant for the public. And similarly, in the primaries, I think you, you just brought up a, a different version of that. We've taken a lot of power away from party elites in primaries with the idea being that it should be much more democratic. But it, what you've really got there is a lot more power in that case in the hands of the of the party's most polarized, most ideological participants, because those are the people who tend to be so invested in politics that they will engage at that level. Something that it seems to me we're often don't realize we're doing but are doing is setting up a choice between do you want elites who are tied to the system and its incentives or do you want people who have a very strong investment, be it financial or ideological, in changing the system? But rarely are we actually finding a way to absorb the ideas of the median voter or the, or the median American, even as we tell ourselves we are. And that seems to me to be a source of a lot of confusion and frustration in the system. Well, that's right. I think in many issues, including some of the most socially divisive ones like abortion and, and, and so forth, it turns out if you look at poll data that, you know, 70 percent of Americans actually have a weekly held view that's somewhere in the middle. And then at either extreme, you got 20 percent or 15 percent that were really convinced at the opposite extremes. And uh, they tend to get overrepresented in the system. There's this other problem of aggregation that's made particularly salient by social media, the rise of social media today. So the, the first of those examples you're referring to is the Administrative Procedure Act passed in 1946 that requires any federal rule change to be posted. There's a notice and comment period where anybody can comment on the rule change. It was uh, meant, you know, quite properly to invite popular participation. So the net neutrality rule that the FCC proposed when it was posted got something on the order of 2.5 million comments. And it turns out that a very large number of those 2.5 million, actually, when you trace back who posted them, came from a single organization. Now, it's very hard to figure out how, as a federal regulator, you deal with a situation like this where you've got so many different voices, you don't know how many of them are actually bots or trolls or, or phony voices. You don't know how to weigh those that are more invested in the situation versus ordinary citizens and the like. I don't have a solution to this, but I think that this is kind of the frontier of, of public participation because obviously you need to get this kind of public input. But on the other hand, we've created these technological means and we've empowered so many people that it becomes a kind of unmanageable problem. Uh, on the question of the technological means, when did you move to Stanford? It was just a couple of years ago, right? Six years ago, yeah. Six years ago. So now mm -hmm. you're there in Silicon Valley or near Silicon Valley, I should say, at a, at a moment when that has become a very 
potent source of economic and cultural power. How would you describe the politics of Silicon Valley compared to the politics of, of, of the East Coast? Well, it's obviously quite different. It tends to be much more socially liberal. A lot of the folks here are techno-libertarian, so it's this odd combination. Well, maybe it's not so inconsistent, but you know, I think on, on economic issues, they obviously care about markets and property rights and that sort of thing. But on social issues, they're, uh, you know, they're much more liberal than the average American or the way things are on the East Coast. I think they're also, in a general way, you know, they've been relatively politically disengaged. And I think this is going to lead to, that's going to have to change uh, because I think that a lot of our politics is moving on to these technology platforms away from TV and traditional media and onto uh, social media. Mark Zuckerberg gave an interview a while back where he was asked whether Facebook was a technology company or a media company. So no, it's absolutely a technology company. All we do is serve as a platform. But increasingly, I think that the technology companies are going to have to come out of this shell because they're going to have to confront the fact that they are actually becoming the arbiters of major uh, or, or major influencers in, in the way that people understand politics and that they can't avoid that role just given the way the technology has evolved. One thing that is striking to me when I come into contact with the politics of Silicon Valley, because Silicon Valley, the technology sector, is now very involved in American politics. You had Peter Thiel giving a primetime speech for Donald Trump. You have, I think Google is now the top lobbyist in, in Washington or is paying for some of it for, it's one of the top buyers of lobbying services in Washington. And something that always strikes me about it, particularly because we're having a conversation about political decay and the limits of institutions, is how optimistic it is. It's, it really seems to me to be in a, a culture where people's identity is formed by seeing impossible problems get solved, while, while Washington is a culture where people's identities are formed seeing problems that were possible to solve prove impossible. <laughs> I, I wonder sometimes the degree to which that sort of optimism, that belief that it is actually all possible and people are just doing it wrong, is that healthy or is it dangerous and naive? How, how do you how do you how do you absorb that? <laughs> well, I think it can be both at the same time. So I do think that it's fundamentally very refreshing to see people that are willing to take a fresh look at real world problems and come up with solutions that other people haven't thought of. And you know, you can think of a lot of instances in which our politics have really been changed by these technological innovations. On the other hand, there is a lot of naivete about that, that people are much more used to thinking about opportunities than constraints, and they get very frustrated when then they go into the real world and they find that they can't actually implement this great app that was going to save millions of lives because the politics of the you know, the particular African country or wherever they are gets in the way of doing that. And so I think you really need both of those things. You, you know, you need a fresh look and you need people that don't assume that the same old constraints are going to be blocking uh, whatever innovation uh, they want to pursue. But it has to confront, you know, the, the, the reality of, of the way the world, uh, the way the world works. Do you think that as a polity, and, and, and maybe even more so as a sort of political class, that we underestimate the tensions and even downside of diversity and pluralism? 
Well, I think that the truth of the matter is that uh, diversity and pluralism has to exist within a certain common frame. You have to have a national culture that is democratic, that promotes certain basic democratic values of tolerance, of, of um, openness, and the like. And so people that don't share that that view, it's, it's very hard to include them in that community. And I think that we have tended to overplay a certain wrong interpretation of multiculturalism over the past few years. And I think that's part of what's fueling the Trump movement is this perception that, that people have gone nuts in terms of sensitivity to all of these groups who you haven't even heard about two, three years ago, that all of a sudden you have to be extremely respectful and, and the like. You know, countries are organized around national communities that share a lot of things in common. And I think that the diversity that exists is a terrific thing, but it has to be understood that it's in with, you know, within this larger framework where people can communicate civilly, that they really be, feel that they're engaged at least in the common political project, even if they have very different uh, views on particular issues. That's a good segue, I think, to a question you've alluded to a couple of times now about the white working class as a locus of discontent in the American political system right now. And and the reason I bring up that question about diversity and pluralism first is that I think there's been a tendency in the conversation to sanitize the forces powering Trump. I think it's very easy. It's very comfortable for political elites who who are very cosmopolitan, who are very committed to diversity and tolerance and pluralism to say, oh, well, the white working class has been struggling economically and that's why this is happening. And so if we just put into play my – because I think the subtext here is if we just put into play my treasured economic opinions, which I've been arguing for for 15 years now, there would be no problem because median wage growth would be higher and when median wage growth is higher, you don't see this kind of political unrest. I think that the evidence at this point is overwhelming that you are not seeing patterns of Trump support that you would predict from an economic anxiety hypothesis, that you're seeing patterns of Trump support that you would much better predict if you thought it was being powered to some degree by demographic anxiety, by racial anxiety, by a feeling that the distribution of power and who holds it in this country is changing and that and people are fundamentally uncomfortable with that. And yet I think this is something that we still don't quite know how to talk about, that the people are very comfortable having an argument about trade policy or very comfortable having an argument about taxes or mills closing. But they're very uncomfortable having an argument or, or even really admitting that there is an argument about whether we should let Muslims into this country, whether we should let immigrants into this country. But if you're going to be taking the concerns of a lot of Trump voters seriously, it seems to me that you need to take that kind of very real skepticism and backlash against where the country is headed demographically seriously and, and, and engage with it as the actual argument? Well, I guess it depends on exactly how you interpret what you just said. I think that, I mean, you didn't use the words racism, bigotry, you know, prejudice, this sort of thing. But it seems to me that that's part of the argument you're making, that a lot yes. of this is driven by very you know, bad uh, motives and not just kind of the reasonable reaction of working class people to losing their jobs and livelihoods can, and so forth. Can I can I interrupt one, for one second? Because yeah. I, I think this is something I'm struggling with. You, I appreciate that you noticed I didn't use those words. 
I don't know that we have a conversation that has more speeds than, or maybe better way to put it is, it seems to me we need to have space in the conversation for something that is not quite racism, but mm-hmm. is clearly very uncomfortable with demographic change. Mm-hmm. We jump all the way across the river so quickly. Right. And I think for a lot of people, what they're feeling is not what we would normally describe as racism, but is a very profound anxiety about their place in society. Mm-hmm. I think we think about racism traditionally as, and obviously it's not the only way we think about it, but as being about other groups where, you know, I don't know if you've seen the work of Arlie Hook's child, who I think used to be at Berkeley, um, mm-hmm. and just did, did a big book on her sort of five-year immersion in, into Tea Party culture. But oh, yeah, I think right. it is a lot more about, there, there's a lot going on here that is anxiety about the group people are part of more than the other groups, but they feel power is a zero something in society. And so it does, it does touch on these questions of bigotry, but it also touches on questions of simple, where am I and my children going to be in the hierarchy of American power in 10 years? And I don't know that we have a good way to talk about that. Yeah, no, that's fine. I I think that that's actually a good non-pejorative way of of putting it. And, And that I think is probably a correct analysis of what's happening. And We've had identity politics in the United States uh, for quite a while. The Democratic Party, I would say, one of its big weaknesses is the fact that it's become basically the party of identity politics where they assemble these coalitions of African Americans, women, gays, disabled people, all these different categories. And the one category that was missing was this white working class where they had all drifted over into the Republican Party precisely because they got this feeling that the Democratic Party wasn't home to them. Now, if you think about the problem in terms of identity, you get these people that had been the dominant culture and majority in the country, and all of a sudden, all of these other identity groups uh, appear, and they appear to be getting online in terms of affirmative action and you know government policy ahead of you. You know, you say to yourself, well, what about us? You know, what, what's the government doing for us? Because objectively, actually, the, you know, being working class has put us at these huge disadvantages in terms of mobility and, and everything else. So, yeah, I think that part of it is, is, is correct. I think that is the anxiety that, that is really, you know, behind it. And I think, I think it's also right that you, you can't simply denounce this as racism and bigotry. But I think that that leads to this question of, okay, well, then what what do you do with it? What is a productive way of dealing with the kinds of anxieties that led to Trump? Because I don't think that people want the way we deal with this to be that we keep seeing something like Trump occur again and again. But at the same time, you know, I mean, you talked about the the way folks like this get get talked to in the conversation and pushed back. There's a very real reason that that people are afraid of these kinds of sentiments. It's very we're talking about in some ways sometimes this conversation can would make I think like a Martian believe that mm-hmm. say African Americans had much higher incomes in America than the white working class, but they don't. There's still a lot of racism in society, still a lot of bigotry, still a lot of sexism. And so we are in this kind of weird moment where the the sense of who is privileged and who is empowered has become very fractured. In a way that I think makes it very difficult because it's not like you can say – I mean when we talk about trade is maybe a good counterexample here. There is a a discourse that's very clear where people say, okay, there are winners and losers from trade. But there are clear winners and certainly the Democratic Party's view is let's tax the winners. 
you know, redistribute the money to the losers and it will all work out. But there's no mechanism like that in this conversation about demographics. There's nothing that people can offer. And I think people are, are rightly afraid of backsliding, given how ugly the impulses are that are, are out there. So you have a much broader perspective on, on how polities deal with these kinds of questions. So w- what is a successful way to deal with this kind of question? Well, I guess I would say a couple of things. First, the thing you don't want to do is to say, okay, well, we've got identity politics and okay, here's this other group of people, white people, and they're an identity group too. And we've got to accommodate them as an identity group, the way we've accommodated Hispanics and African-Americans and, you know, gays. And so I, I think that's really a big mistake. Even if you don't think that this is actually simply being driven by economic distress I think it's still much better to talk about this in class terms rather than identity terms because Mm. class is much more neutral. And in fact, it is the central divide in American politics today. So if you look at across, you know, African-Americans, you've had a middle class that's done extremely well over the last generation. And then, you know, what we used to call the underclass that continues to be pretty stagnant. And so keeping the focus on, on class is important. I guess in terms of identity, you do not want to validate identity politics in the sense that everybody belongs to a victimized group of some sort or another. And so let's just add another to the list. I think what you want to do is talk positively about American identity and what that would consist of and you know shared values because that's really the way that you integrate people into a larger cultural whole, not simply a economic and political whole, but a a cultural whole. And that's something that I think, you know, has been done by presidents in the past. I don't hear very much of that language coming out of either of the candidates in this election. Would you have said three years ago or four years ago that American politics was, that, that the forces existed for it to be vulnerable to an actor like Trump? Uh, no, I, we went through a period like this in the 1930s after the Great Depression where you had a lot of economic distress and then a lot of radical policies being pursued and Germany and Italy went off in this authoritarian direction and the United States chose Franklin Roosevelt who was regarded as a radical in the context of American politics but actually stayed well within the democratic frame and I think many people thought, well, that just reflects a very different kind of American political culture that is deeply democratic and and liberal. And I think this election year has suggested that maybe we were just lucky back then. Uh, Maybe there wasn't actually anything deeply constraining that kind of move other than just good leadership. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but certainly I had not, you know, it really had not struck struck me as forcefully that this might be a possibility a year ago as it does today. What country in the world do you think is governed best? Well, I think a number of democracies in the world are doing pretty well. So a lot of the Commonwealth countries, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, a lot of countries in Northern Europe like Germany, the Netherlands, Scandinavian countries, you know, they've all got problems, but they are not polarized in anything like the way that we are in the United States, they've been able to enact pretty difficult, you know, let's say labor market reforms that caused a lot of 
anguish and, and internal controversy, but they did it, and, and they ended up having better policies as the result. So I don't think that there's a general problem in democratic governance, but I think you can see the threats to this all around the margins because I think those successful countries are, some of them are, are especially the Scandinavian ones, are successful because they're pretty small and pretty up till now homogeneous, and you can already see the that formula beginning to fray around the edges. What's your assessment of the, the China model of governance? Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's headed in a very bad direction right now. Under Xi Jinping, I think that most of the things that people would have said made it a a better authoritarian regime than the vast majority were the fact that it was increasingly, it, it didn't have rule of law, but it was more and more rule-based. And so you had mandatory retirements of party members and a 10-year turnover cycle, you know, where the leadership would step down and replace itself and a kind of creeping rule of law, at least from the bottom. And I think Xi Jinping has really upset that. And that's a fun, you know, it, but it speaks to a fundamental problem in their political system, which is that ultimately, because there is no basic rule of law, they're vulnerable to being captured by uh, a leader like him. And I think right now, a lot of the elite in China is really, really scared because they haven't seen this sort of behavior since Mao Zedong, uh, uh, you know, single leader accumulates all this power with very few other institutions in the in the system being able to stand up to him. And I think that indicates that this is not a stable system, that, that it's not going to be sustainable uh, in the long run. This is the first time in the last few years, in the last three years, that you've heard serious people speculating about the possibility of a military coup or you know, a big revolt within the party that will really destabilize the country in a, in a serious way. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You're famous, of course, for 
among other things, your essay on the end of history. And, and something I heard a lot of people talk about in the last couple of years has been whether the financial crisis that we went through and then the ensuing instability in a number of these political systems, including some of the European ones, suggests that there might be a point where liberal democracy yoked to capitalism We'll see a kind of instability and and driven by a kind of inequality that perhaps it can't handle. Do you see anything on the horizon and in the world route that seems like an alternative model that will attract people, or or do you think that you know this is really a question of of keeping uh, of there being one model? And the question is how how well we can uh, sustain it. I really, honestly, don't see that alternative model. Certainly these Islamic, you know, radical Islamic or Islamist models are not either popular generally, they're not even popular in the Middle East, you know, they're mostly imposed by people with guns. And they're certainly not popular outside of, you know, outside of that cultural group. The China model is probably the most plausible. But I I think, first of all, as I just said, I don't, I'm not sure it's sustainable. Uh, It's also not replicable elsewhere. So, there's plenty of authoritarian dictators that claim that they're following a China model, but they don't have anything like the discipline and the institutionalized authoritarianism that the Chinese have. So I really, you know, for all the problems that we're having in the democratic world right now, it's um, uh, it's hard to see what the alternative is. One thing that I do think is a major threat is that Liberal democracy was always a, a, a compound political system that is where the different parts are in tension with one another. And right now, I think in countries like Russia and Turkey and Hungary and elsewhere, the democratic part is turning on the liberal part, meaning that you're getting governments that have popular support that are undermining the rule of law, undermining individual rights, eroding the basic structure that limits power, and I think that is not a new phenomenon. That's it's 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 what happened in the 1930s in in, in Europe, but it's a very troubling, uh, very troubling trend. And I must say, there are echoes of that in in our politics in the United States today. Do you think that America would be better off with a parliamentary political system? Well, <laughs> yes, I do, but it's never going to happen in a zillion years, so I I don't think about it very much. I I think that, and this observation really just comes from looking at presidential systems across a lot of different countries and across time, that that division of power between a equally legitimate executive and legislature tends to do one of two things. Either uh, when they disagree, you get gridlock and, and paralysis, or in order to get out of that, you delegate a lot of authority to the executive branch, and then you end up with a kind of hyper-presidentialism. And I think that neither of those is is a good thing. And I think you're seeing that already in the United States, where the partisan gridlock between Congress and the administration in the Obama years has then led to his use of executive orders as a means of getting around it, which basically is a version of what's happened in many Latin American countries that have faced similar problems. In a parliamentary system, you just don't have this, you know, you just don't have this kind of issue. You can have other forms of deadlock like you have in Spain right now where people can't agree on a on a single party that can actually win a majority and so they get a lot of instability that way. You know, there's some problems that no political system is is going to be able to solve, but I do think that we saddle ourselves with 
with an extra set of problems by having a presidential system. Agreeing that no parliamentary system is probably in the offering in in America. What are the government reforms or the process reforms that feel they don't have to be realistic, but near at hand, um, something that one could plausibly imagine happening in American politics over the next, say, 15 years that you think would make a difference? Well, if the problem is vetocracy, meaning too many veto points, you have an agenda that just reduces those veto points. So uh, I would begin with senatorial holds. It's just absurd that all, any one of 100 senators can block any executive branch appointment uh, that's up for Senate confirmation that they want. So there's this huge backlog of of judges and administrators, you know, federal bureaucrats uh, that because of the partisanship don't get appointed. Uh, I would get rid of the filibuster so that you do not need a supermajority for passing uh, routine legislation. I say that with some trepidation because if you actually had a President Trump, that would come in quite useful. But I think, you know, in the longer run, that has made it very hard to get uh, get things through Congress. You can do a number of things. Uh, so my colleague at Stanford, Terry Moe, has a new book basically proposing that essentially you shift the agenda setting powers really very dramatically to the executive branch where Congress no longer can propose legislation. They can only vote up or down legislation proposed by the executive. I think that's too dramatic a shift, but you could do something like that with regard to federal budgets, let's say, which would make it a more parliamentary kind of system where the executive would formulate the budget and then it would go to Congress, you know, for a, for an up or down vote or probably more realistically, since I don't think Americans would ever approve that kind of shift of power between branches, you, you need to create some mechanism like that within Congress itself, basically by restoring a more hierarchical system by which the, you know, the leadership in Congress can actually discipline the, you know, the members to actually vote, you know, without loading up the Christmas tree and, and this sort of thing. So something we do uh, on this show sometimes is I'll, I'll ask a guest to tell me what they learned from a couple of different events or or people, which I'd like to do with you if that's all right, and just jump a little bit widely around the world. So w- what did you learn? I, I know you studied with Sam Huntington. What did you learn from him? What should people know? Well, actually, I had three really important influences or mentors intellectually. So one very early in my education was Alan Bloom, the political theorist, Another was Sam Huntington, uh, you know, when I was a graduate student at Harvard, and then finally Seymour Martin Lipset, who I knew actually later in life as a colleague, but uh, was also quite inspirational. And I think the thing that all of them had in common was that they, unlike many academics today, really were big picture thinkers. I mean, Bloom especially, because he was a theorist, he he dealt in ideas, you know, basic, you know, take a course with him on Plato, and it begins with this question, what makes for a good human life, and what is a just political system, and the like. But I think that also Huntington and Lipset were social scientists that were empirically based, but they took on big questions where empirical evidence didn't always give you a very clear or or irrefutable answer. And, you know, they had the courage to talk about these sorts of things. And I think that that's something that doesn't happen, you know, that often in academic discourse these days. Which is to, to pull that critique out a little bit to say that 
there are you saying that within political science or or the or social science more broadly that there is a tendency to focus too much on what one can find empirical or experimental evidence for and not enough on questions that maybe are more fundamental but don't lend themselves to that kind of methodology well you know social science has been trying to chase the natural sciences for decades and they really would like to turn what they do into a species of natural science where you can have causal inferences that are very, very rigorously supported by empirical evidence. And it turns out you can do this, but only if you make the question that you're trying to answer extremely small. And so that's really, I think, where the field is today. And I think the larger question, you know, why are some countries rich and some countries poor? Why do democracies endure in some places and not in others? You can't come up with a rigorous answer to that because there'll be like 15 different causal factors that will play some role in determining that outcome. But that doesn't mean that the older kind of social theory that at least, you know, created a taxonomy and a vocabulary by which we can understand these big processes, you know, democratization, modernization, social change, the like, that language and that theoretical effort is still very, uh, very useful, even if it's not you know, rigorously empirical in the way that a lot of social scientists would like to make their disciplines now. What did you learn from Ronald Reagan's presidency? You know, I was supportive of him. I was a political appointee in the first Reagan administration because I thought that he had an agenda that I thought was necessary because I do think that, you know, the state and a lot of regulation and, and, and the like needed to be wound back in retrospect, given the way that the Republican Party has evolved in recent years, uh, I actually <laughs> have come to appreciate Reagan, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways more than I did at the time, because I think he was basically committed to certain fundamental values. The other thing that was very interesting about him is that he proved that within the context of a democratic society, you could actually break out of certain assumptions about policy. In foreign policy, he took on a much more ideological stance against the Soviet Union and against authoritarian government in general than anyone had thought possible in the, you know, the Kissinger, Ford, you know, Carter years. Uh, and he proved that actually that, that worked. You know, it was possible to make these much broader leaps. So I guess that's kind of where, where I stand with him. How about the Iraq war? Well, the Iraq war, <laughs> you know, that and the financial crisis, I think, were really important lessons because they both, I think, stem from a certain both arrogance and overlearning of some of the lessons of the 1980s and 1990s. And so the Iraq war, I think, was a terrible overestimation of American power and the American ability to shape events in a very culturally different part of the world. And it was a learning experience for me because a lot of the people that I thought got into the trouble uh, for pre precisely that kind of arrogance and, and, and you know, lack of, of awareness uh, were, you know, close friends of mine. I think also the, you know, the financial crisis was a kind of extension of the Reagan views about free markets and, and the ability of free markets to organize themselves that were just completely mistaken in the end. That part of it, I really, I'd never really bought into at any point, but, 
but it certainly underlined the limits of that uh, that way of thinking. And I think, you know, those were the two big failures of the first decade of the 20th century, and they're both traceable back to conservative ideas that had germinated back in the 1980s. Do you worry that we have overlearned the lesson of the Iraq War? Uh, I, I know a lot of folks in the foreign policy community who feel that the Obama administration, the Democratic Party broadly, are so scarred by that failure that they underestimate what America can do now, and that's behind, say, a disastrous set of outcomes in Syria. Well, we always overlearn. You know, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, the way democratic politics works is that you get these swings and you never end up in a kind of good, you know, middle middle point. So I think that's probably true. I would say actually I'm not I'm not completely unsympathetic to Obama's instincts about the Middle East because I I really uh, don't see a clear way in which we could have applied our power in a way that really would have made that uh situation fundamentally better in the long run. But we don't know that because it's all based on all these counterfactuals that we really can't know about. I think there's other places in the world where it has been much more disastrous. So I think his washing his hands of Afghanistan has really, in the process of destabilizing that country, he seemed to have the right idea on China, you know, with the with the pivot towards Asia. But I think he's completely dropped the ball because I think really the most serious long-term geostrategic challenge is the rise of China. And we've not been paying attention. I don't think that we've really worked out a long-term strategy for how to deal with this problem. Uh, and I think that's something that will be very much inherited by whoever becomes the next president. I have a skepticism towards some of the, the long-range strategic ideas in, in foreign policy. It always seems to me there's a big attraction to sort of grand doctrines in a field of affairs that often seems to be so specific in each one that those doctrines often end up doing more harm than good, which I guess is to say, do you think what we need is a long-range plan for how to deal with China, or do you think what we need is more attention to the day-to-day, month-to-month relationship with China? It's hard to not have a a framework. Uh, so, yeah, maybe it's not good to lock yourself into a publicly articulated grand design, which you're then going to have to back away from you know, on a, in, a, in a specific instance. But every leader has got to have some basic understanding about the way the world works and how America relates to the rest of the world, uh, you know, how important, for example, promotion of democratic values is going to be as opposed to a much narrower concept of American self-interest and the like. And if people claim that they're just behaving pragmatically, they're just not aware of the fact that their pragmatic decisions are actually driven by these priors about American interests and how they define them and how they see competition in the world and, and all these other things. So I do think that uh, I do think that the more long-range understandings are still important. Black Lives Matter. Well, uh, I think that... <laughs> so I think that the... Yeah, this is one of those issues that uh, I think is, I mean, it's just, it's it's really unfortunate the way this has unfolded because I, I think that race relations in many ways have gotten worse over the past few years in, 
I guess, ways I would not have predicted. So I think that the question of police violence against African Americans, if you look at the underlying data, there has not been a an upsurge in, in this. I mean, overall, you know, crime rates have fallen over the last 30 years, and I would imagine that police abuses have probably fallen proportionally to that. I think people are much more aware of it because of the existence of cell phone cameras and the greater transparency that the whole public sector is is subject to. And then they are rightly outraged by the particular examples of this that they see. And then it gets amplified by the, the media coverage, and then it provokes this backlash. And so uh, I guess on this issue, you know, I wish we could find the right policy that takes this seriously, you know, the, the, the problem of, of police abuses, but somehow avoids this polarized place that we've gotten to where, you know, the problem is not seen as a kind of adjustment between these two goals of maintaining public safety and respecting the rights of, of black citizens, because obviously I think a sensible policy is going to want to uh, want to do both of those. Why do you think that topics like, I don't want to say topics like this one, because I think it's possible for, for something of this nature, it would always have been sharply polarized. But it, it does seem to me that there are more discussions that are absorbed into our traditional left-right political polarization than the underlying issue itself would suggest. And, and I'm thinking here a little bit, the reason this came to mind is Michael Tesler, who's a political scientist, has done some really interesting work showing how attitudes on racial controversies in the Obama era are much more sharply sorted by partisanship than attitudes on racial controversies were in, say, the Clinton era. That in the Clinton era, there was basically no uh, Republican-Democratic gap when you polled people on whether O.J. Simpson was guilty or the Bernard Goetz shooting. But in the Obama era, there's been tremendous Republican-Democratic gaps on things like, should 12 Years a Slave win an Oscar? Is George Zimmerman guilty? We've managed to map racial polarization onto political polarization in a way that strikes me as, as in a way that strikes me as dangerous and appears to be according to survey data genuinely new do you have a theory of why that's happening or or what can be done about it well i don't think it's just on racial issues it's basically everything you know i think that to the extent that the united states was well governed we actually had a number of institutions or areas in which you actually had a certain amount of relatively impartial expertise making policy and that people trusted those institutions to actually do their job. And I think the thing that really scares me right now is this polarization is and the and the, the partisanship is infecting, you know, more and more areas. And so, you know, there's several examples of this. Uh, the Fed, you know, I think that central banks all over the world have been just struggling to deal with this question of in the in the aftermath of these big financial crises, you know, how do you stimulate economic growth? Uh, and then you get Donald Trump coming along and saying, well, you know, Janet Yellen is basically just an agent of Hillary Clinton and I'm going to replace her. I think, you know, the U.S. military uh, is actually one of the best military. I mean, it, it is the best military, you know, anywhere in the world. And I mean, the, the army picks its own leaders. Obviously, presidents have some impact on that, but they basically want very competent people. And again, you have this prospect of a kind of political purge that may happen 
uh, you know, if, if uh, Trump gets elected, even something like the National Weather Service or NOAA has gotten drawn into this, you know, these accusations that they're actually overestimating Hurricane Matthew because they want to make this point about climate change. I mean, uh, so I think it's not just this race issue. It's, it's basically every institution in the country that had previously been protected to some extent from this sort of partisanship is really now falling into this maelstrom. And I just think it's going to lead to very bad government in the long run. When people hear something like that, and, and I agree with what you said, but when, when people hear something like that, I think that they can go in one of two directions. I think the direction a lot of people go in is say, okay, party polarization, ideological polarization is a core problem in American politics. And so we need to do something to ratchet back political polarization. And another version of it is say, political polarization is now locked into American politics and it's only going to get worse. And so we need to find ways to change the system to be able to absorb and, and, and function amidst what could be a persistently polarized, uh, in, in a persistently polarized place. Which side do you come down on? Do you think that there's an agenda that would reduce polarization or do you think it's a, something we have to learn to live with? Well, I don't believe that there is a way to address the broader cultural polarization. You know, that's happening for a lot of different reasons in terms of residential housing patterns and, and you know, the way that the media operates and, and the like. And I, I really don't see a way of changing that. I think the only thing you can do is to change institutions to make them less vehicles for promoting this polarization and by the way, it's not just polarization, it's also the impact of these well-organized interest groups, right? So right. our institutions tend to, because they tend to favor strong, well-organized minority voices, you need to shift the, or the institutions in a way that would force them to compromise, you know, to actually come up with solutions that transcend the different polarized communities and interest groups. So, you know, one of the obvious ones just has to do with electoral districts and redistricting. I mean, part of the reason that the House is so polarized and actually kind of stacked in favor of Republicans is because we've allowed the two political parties to do redistricting. And so they do it in order to protect, you know, their own majorities and to cut down the number of districts that actually are competitive. Whereas I think if you did it the way, you know, Britain or Canada or other Anglophone countries approach this, you turn it over to a, you know, a nonpartisan, impartial uh, body that would try to actually force people with divergent views to actually have to, you know, come together in, in electing a representative and therefore having people that represented, you know, more centrist views rather than views that are on the extreme. So there, there are things that you can do, I think, to institutionally to mitigate the underlying societal polarization. But quite frankly, there's just a limit to that. I think uh, any political scientist would understand that, you know, past a certain point, these rules will only uh, get you so far. I think that makes sense. So let's say that the next president, whoever it is, comes to you and says, I have read your two books on political order and political decay over and over and over again. And I am persuaded that political decay in America is a central problem. If a politician or political party wanted to see the problem as political decay, 
what would their agenda look like? And I'm not even asking necessarily for policies that would solve it, but what kinds of things would they emphasize as they think about what they need to address? I think that there's a couple of things that would immediately come to mind. You would need to address the problem of you know campaign finance and money and politics, since both on the left and the right, that's what's motivating uh, a lot of the anger. We seem to be stuck right now because of Vallejo versus Buckley and Citizens United and so forth. And so if it requires political pressure on the court to make possible a, you know, a higher degree of regulation of money in politics, I think that would be part of the uh, agenda. Uh, I think that fundamentally the inequality problem is also one of the drivers of, of a lot of the anger. And I think that addressing that in a serious way is important. I mean, there's there's two things that you could do, I think, that would actually have a big impact. And, you know, one is actually to do this tax reform that would get rid of our embarrassingly ridiculous and long tax code that is full of special privileges for particular interest groups in in the country, reduce the corporate tax rate, and then create incentives, you know, for the companies that are holding a couple trillion dollars in capital overseas to bring it home and invest it in the United States. And then the other thing is in the infrastructure area, I would take advantage of that those pile, you know, those those enormous piles of capital around the world, and actually use it, you know, borrow money to do a really big investment uh, spree, which would have to be accompanied by those changes in these rules, these accumulated rules that make it really hard to get any of these projects done in less than about ten years. Uh, so I think between those two things, I think you would actually address some of the underlying causes of voter anger. The question I always end the show with with is, what are three books you would recommend to the audience that have influenced the way you think that more people should read? Just on this question of populism, there's three three obvious candidates. So two of them, you know, are, are from social scientists. So one is Charles Murray's Coming Apart, The Fate of White America, which was published, I think, already three, four years ago. Last year, uh, Bob Putnam published a book called Our Kids. I mean, they're from opposite ends of the political spectrum, but they're about exactly the same set of data about what's happened to this white working class because there's many cultural dimensions to this besides the familiar economic job loss story, which has to do with drug use, uh, rise of crime, single-parent families, a lot of things that we associated primarily with the African-American inner city 25 years ago. And then this uh, book by J.D. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy, which he's not a social scientist. He's somebody that comes from rural Kentucky and grew up in that environment. And I think it illustrates in a very vivid, personal way what it means to come out of that cultural environment. And also, I think, is a kind of wake-up call that I really think that in many ways class prejudice is one of the strongest forms of prejudice that exists in the United States, but it's one that's not recognized as a prejudice and therefore doesn't get the kind of attention that I think it really ought to. Francis Fukuyama, thank you very much for taking the time. All right. Thank you very much. That was Francis Fukuyama. Uh, Thank you so much to him for taking the time, to you for taking the time, to my producer, AC Valdez. Uh, The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back with it next week.